Hey, No Wrong Answers listeners, this is Kyle Palmer, and before this latest episode begins, I have some exciting news, especially if you live in the Kansas City metro area. No Wrong Answers, with the help of KCUR, Kansas City Public Radio, is hosting a live event on Thursday, March 22nd, called Keeping Our Schools Safe. This is a community forum, free and open to the public, where we will talk about what, if anything, has changed in the weeks since the Florida school shooting and what schools can do to keep their students safe and make them feel safe. This event is Thursday, March 22nd at 6.30 p.m. at the Shawnee Mission School District Administrative Center on West 71st Street in Overland Park. Check our Facebook page for more details. This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. On this episode of No Wrong Answers, a teacher gets outed as a closet white supremacist. What does it say about schools that she was able to get a teaching job in the first place? Plus, the DACA program has not ended, but... Students receiving the special protective status are still anxious about their futures. We talk with three DACA recipients about what life is like under a cloud of uncertainty. And the West Virginia teacher strike is over, but what did it teach our teachers? We'll end, as we always do, with kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist. And I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Maddie Burkemper, what do you teach? I teach fifth grade. Kirsten Brown, what do you teach or what do you do in education? Yes, I am a high school principal. And Bakari Uku'u, what do you do in education? Uh, Middle school vice principal. All three of them are educators at public schools or public charter schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. A teacher at a Florida middle school has been removed from the classroom after it was revealed she had been hosting a white nationalist podcast and frequently espoused anti-Semitic and racist views on social media. Diana Volatich, she has said, science proves some races are smarter than others. She's also bragged about slipping her racist beliefs into class without her administration noticing. This is what she said on a February episode of her podcast. This audio was posted by HuffPo before the podcast itself was actually taken down. I've had a couple instances where, you know, parents were concerned. I had one at the beginning of this year who emailed the principal over my head and basically, you know, told her, I'm worried that your teacher is in, you know, she's injecting political bias into her teaching. And the principal came to me and she was like, I'm not worried. Should I be worried? And I'm like, no. (laughs) And she believed me, and she backed off. Volatich also appears to tweet under the name Tiana Dolikov, retweeting tweets that praise Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke and tweeting messages that call theories of implicit bias and systemic racism untrue. Volatich has since released a statement saying the racist views she expressed on the podcast were, quote, satire and exaggeration. We could go on. We don't want to talk about Volatich as such that much, but we want to talk more about what it says about schools and our education system writ large that someone like Volatich was able to get a job teaching kids. 
And I should say I'm not naive enough to think that Volatich's case is a one-off event. HuffPo notes that a principal at a New Orleans charter school was fired last summer for also appearing on White Nationalist Podcast. And we've also talked on this podcast about a middle school vice principal in Texas who was fired after writing a children's book that featured a Pepe the Frog-like protagonist. So there are bigger issues here to get into. I did want to ask a few questions to start about this particular situation with this teacher, Diana Volatich. Her district says she's been removed from the classroom as the district investigates the situation. So for my teachers here, I wanted to ask you, what does it say to you that she just wasn't fired outright? For me, it's actually very frustrating. It's very telling of our education system, especially as we really get into this hard work of uh, diversity and inclusion, um, conversations and just equity in education. We're starting to see a lot of these type of issues boil to the surface and really recognizing that teachers are still struggling with identifying and reconciling and um, wrestling with their own biases that they carry, whether they're people of color or, or not. And so I think that to me, it's very disappointing that she wasn't fired. I mean, for me, I feel like that is definitely something to be terminated over. Regardless of the demographic of the students when she's teaching, that is not someone who I would want in my school in front of any students. Yeah, and we should say for what it's worth, she was teaching at a school that, as HuffPo reporting, as, as you can look on records, I mean, it's about 90% white, but I mean, as you Which said, is actually probably even more problematic that she continues, that she is perpetuating and, and teaching these type of uh, ideologies to her students. Um, you know, I think the Diana Volatiches are out there for sure. Um, but, Bakari, you started to kind of allude to this. Diana Volatiches is a big problem in a visceral way, but we've talked before about how maybe more passive racist mindsets and just ingrained racist beliefs, um, especially by white teachers, are, are out there and have a a widespread pernicious effect within schools. I guess I wanted to broaden this conversation and ask how should schools screen, if at all, for these, um, uh, I guess, more passive but still damaging racist mindsets, maybe not even something as volatile as what Diana Volatich was was expressing, but even just something more more passive but but ingrained. Kirsten, you run your own school. You have been in the hiring process. You are picking uh, teachers to work for you and work with your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, what are schools to do? Just during the interview, just asking questions that really get at the mindsets as much as possible. And I think that there's a way that you can construct questions that allow you to get at candidates' mindsets. Um, Give me an example. For an, yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. For example, you could ask questions that are related to race that aren't are particularly obviously so. Like, what's your belief on school suspensions? Um, Knowing that African-American males, for example, are disproportionately suspended, you could also ask about what are the causes of the issue you make out? Why do you think this exists? And that gives you a little bit of insight into how they they think about these topics related to race. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think another important thing is to have them do some type of sample lesson in front Mm -hmm. of your students. That way you can see them in action. And it could be something really subtle, such as how they're interacting with students, who they call on, the type of, like, if they're giving these highly rigorous questions to white students and are not calling on black students, for example, that's really telling. Those types of situations really allow you to see how teachers operate within that space with students. And, like, keeping that heat up during, because it's not like you just get hired and then you're you know you're tenured all of a sudden so you could really if you kept that pressure on them for the first year Mm -hmm. that they're at your school like you can well you know i i you bring that up maddie i found it interesting that you know there was an administrator in her room or there was an administrator that kind of followed up with her after there was a complaint made in this situation at least and i would imagine this has to be the case at at other places there seems to be a um, an unwillingness to like maybe confront this problem head-on or more explicitly um, like kind of taking the teacher's word for it, like should I be should I be worried? Should I be bothered? No. 
okay, you know, maybe with with a sense of relief moving on to another, you know, another problem. So um, I guess once the teacher is hired, once the teacher is in the building, uh, once you have this person as a colleague, what's the next step? What, like what can be done? Yeah. So I think a lot of professional development around like equity and what that looks like and operating within our students and how to make sure teachers are being culturally responsive because a lot of teachers come to the come to schools with these biases they not may not even recognize may be mm-hmm. there and allowing them to go to different um, development sessions in which they're able to uncover those biases and determine how they operate within their classroom um, will help them kind of uncover that reality and work to, to fix it is there a danger that like cases like Diana Volatich you know as disturbing as they are I mean that's still, I think, theoretically an easy, you know, you could call it an easy case, right? Is, is there is there a... I don't, admi- I don't think it would be easy. I think a lot of people would come back at you with like, oh, she has the right to say and do what she wants to do when she's not in school. It, people aren't going to accept it. Mm. They're going to be like, right. well, she's allowed to do what she wants right. to do first because she's protected by the first... And, re- and they'll be like, well, how come people who are LGBTQ get to do whatever they want? Like, I don't want them in there. Like, if if you're going to allow someone who's, like, identifying on that spectrum to teach my kid, like, That's how come how point. come they get to be in there and she doesn't? That actually is a very good point. Why? There's a, uh, you know, a there's, like, there's a double video, standard. A viral you know? photo going around right now about uh, two guys kissing and he's a teacher. And the, the, the question is, should he be able to post this in his classroom because it's prompting questions from his third grade it's students. It's spouse, you know. Um, so I definitely see, I, de- I definitely hear what you're saying around this is not a cut and dry issue for many people that they would be arguing that she has a right to her, her personal views as long as it's not impacting her classroom. Right. I think the difference here is that she's already admitted, whether it's satirically or not, but that it is impacting her classroom and that is negatively impacting the outcomes of kids. And I think that's where we have now, now we have grounds for a further disciplinary action on our end. Right. The, the bigger philosophical argument, though, our debate is, okay, everyone at this table I think, sees the, the bright, clear line of what this case violates. I think what Maddie is alluding to, I think, is true, um, that there's probably a lot of people both um, in our society but also in education who look at this Diana Volta situation and say, like, what's the big deal? If that's what she does on her free time outside of school, she has the right to do that. Right. Um, I guess so the bigger philosophical debate is for the people at this table who see the bright, clear line, uh, I mean, what's the battle going forward in education? Right. Like, so she definitely has the right to do that outside of her classroom. It's the fact that when she does it inside the classroom, that's when we step in as educators and say enough is enough. And so she does not have that right to do that in front of her students in her classroom. And I think that's that's the line for me is that when it's that carryover and oftentimes I don't I don't think you can separate those ideologies. If you are a white supremacist and you believe that a particular race doesn't have the genetic makeup to be intelligent, then that's going to carry over into your educational practice. And that's going to be grounds for your dismissal mm-hmm. every day of the week. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. I still am kind of like when people push back and they're like, well, if they connect that to politics or if they connect that back to gay marriage or mm-hmm. anything. And they're like, well, would you say that someone who doesn't support gay marriage should also not be in a classroom? Because like for me, I'm like, that's also a pretty bright line for me. You know, like if you aren't willing to be supportive of or climate change students. Right. So that's kind of these are like, good questions. And so that's kind of like I don't view it in my own head as mm-hmm. a slippery hill. But I feel like that's the in fight. Society, that, that's is, the fight yeah. that we need to be fighting, which is why 
I would it's posit that anybody who is teaching the perpetuation of oppression of any group does not, should not be in front of students as an educator. And who gets to decide that? Like, that's the battle of, like, who gets to decide what well, is Bakari wants to be superintendent someday, so. <laughs> oh, I'm down. <laughs> that yeah. is very true. That'd be great. <laughs> Well, I think it's like anything related to, to hate, like that is unacceptable. Like anything that, no matter where, what issue it, you know, specifically it is that right. pertains to hatred, but, that's I mean, unacceptable. I I agree, but don't you feel like that even that conversation has shifted in the last year and a half over like yes. what is hate? And I like, mean, like what, what is go hatred? talk to someone who feels like their religious liberties are being under attack. Like that's the entire Catholic community. Like, mm. and they don't. I mean, that's just a whole. So who gets to decide who's getting attacked and who? And I agree with us, but I think what do we, we do now? But So I think too often we have these conversations, we tend to play to like the extremes, right? The, in, a, in that we're mm, not, okay. we, we don't really norm off a majority of folks. And I think that when I think about not, a, not perpetuating this um, ideologies of oppression, I think of the, the, the majority of folks who sit in front of them. And I'm not thinking of like those people who are the far extremes who just want to cry out for the sake of crying out. Yes. Um, and I think that too often they dominate the conversations when what we're actually saying is very common sense that we just don't want anyone standing in front of kids saying this group of people don't deserve uh-huh. to have the same rights right. as this group of people, uh-huh. period. Well, just to wrap up this conversation, and you, Bakari, what you said mm-hmm. just now made me think, right? So there is, let me be clear, there is a difference between, I think, the type of overt bias that someone like Diana Volotic shows and the um, maybe... Well, the unconscious and implicit bias that I think pervade a lot of other teachers' classrooms, mm-hmm. especially white teachers. I mean, I'll say when I came to teaching more than a decade ago uh, through Teach for America, I I had to confront a lot of things about what I didn't know that I believed mm-hmm. um, about communities and, and children of color. That was at, at times a painful process. What we're saying is there is still a place to 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 coach and teach those people. Agreed. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I think it's necessary I, that— our society has been built, constructed on these biases against particular groups of people. So it would be foolish for us to say that anyone with a bias can't be in our classrooms. So part of the work that we have to do through our professional development, our teacher training, is to help us confront and, and overcome those biases. But I think, as you said, when it's that overt, that is not something that we should even put money toward, in my book. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Moving on to our next segment, March 5th came and went with little fanfare. You may remember that day was supposed to be the deadline for Congress to come up with a fix for America's bankrupt immigration system. Specifically, it was the deadline imposed six months ago by President Trump for Congress to pass a permanent solution to the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program. This is the Obama-era program that shields some 700,000 young immigrants from deportation. Well, newsflash, Congress hasn't done anything yet, but DACA did not end on March 5th. That's because a federal court ruling in California said the Trump administration's decision to end DACA was, quote, arbitrary and capricious, end quote. And the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear the Trump administration's appeal of that ruling. For now, DACA remains in place. 
DACA recipients can get their applications renewed, but no new applications are being accepted. Still, the legal status of the hundreds of thousands of young immigrants with DACA remains tenuous. The uncertain future of the program is putting their lives and careers on hold and has made many of them doubt the efficacy of the work they're putting into the classroom. As this debate continues, we wanted to hear from students who are DACA recipients about how this ongoing legal uncertainty is affecting them, their ongoing classwork, and their perceptions of their futures. We talked with three students from the Kansas City area. They all graduated at different times from the same high school in Kansas City and now go to college in the Kansas City area. Two of them were comfortable using their full real names, as you'll hear, but one did not want to use her real name and asked that we refer to her by a first name pseudonym. Here is our conversation with them. Hello, I'm a current college student, and uh, I'm studying, studying software engineering. What's your name? Eduardo Vasquez. Eduardo, thanks for joining us. Who's next? Um, I am Cynthia Yepes. I'm currently at Park University, and I am studying business management with a minor in finance. Um, my name is Diana, and I am currently a junior in college, and I am studying business administration. Um, um, are there? I mean, are there times where it's it's hard to listen to the news coverage? It's it's. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, just how you know, president sees us, or how other people that uh, support him are like reading the comments and like I don't know. It's like they feel like you are, like they know you and like they know your situation, but they really don't. Do you feel uh, marginalized? Do you feel like you're not wanted here? At some points, I do, personally. I remember that when I was, like, a high school student, my struggles were, uh, what college am I going to get into and what, um, how am I going to pay for college? But now I feel like some of my struggles is, what do people think of me when I'm in college, when I'm, like, sitting down in classroom? What are they actually thinking of me? What, uh, now that Trump has been open to the subject and been really not very respectful, I feel like people think that it's okay for them to be not respectful towards us as well. Uh, describe what it's like, say, on an average day um, with this status that you have now and the debate that's going on and the kind of the uncertainty around, you know, where you'll be at, you know, weeks or months from now. How does it affect your daily life now? I know what I'm here for. I know what I want. And I know that we're not wrong in this. We're not wrong to want an education. We're not wrong to want the same thing that the other student in class is getting. And um, I feel like I'm more open now to be like, hey, yeah, I'm a DACA student. I've been a DACA student, and I'm not scared to say it. Eduardo, Diana, I mean, how has being a DACA recipient affected your educational choices? You're both now in college in the Kansas City area. Um, As you were in high school looking for colleges, um, how did your status affect your options, affect your choices? I was able to get into many of the schools I wanted, but to actually go there, I wasn't able to because, like, many of the scholarships that were offered were just for U.S. citizens or for residents, and there was just a a small percentage that were for DACA students, and those were, like, small amounts of money uh, for um, a lot of the community. So even if you were able to get those scholarships, it couldn't compare to the tuition of the school that you wanted to go to. Yeah, Eduardo. Uh, a lot of people don't know, but uh, for uh, DACA student like us, a lot of doors are closed. For example, they charge us uh, international tuition, even though we leave we uh, we live here in, you know, us um, in the state of Missouri, right? Yeah. And that, and that was a, a fairly recent law change, maybe a year or two ago, mm-hmm. where the lawmakers, yeah, um, yeah, passed a law that you know charges international tuition for, yeah. um, and so yeah, I mean, how did that yeah. affect you? Well, yeah, that, that that's a big one. So. 
now we have to pay more than the a regular student. So, you know, not my options. I don't have many options. The best thing that um, to do in this case would be to look at uh, private colleges or universities where uh, they offer help. And uh, since they're they're private, they won't charge your international tuition. Or, and we, we should say that's kind of where you, I mean you landed at private schools. Yes. yes. Yeah, so yeah. You're, you're all mm-hmm. at private colleges right. in the Kansas mm-hmm. City area. But even then, private schools are like a lot more expensive right. than state yeah. schools. So they're still yeah. they're still expensive. Private schools yeah. are still expensive. But you but go there because they there's more of a chance that you'll get offered financial aid. Right. And yes, and, and they're they're more affordable than out of state tuition that uh, for international yeah. tuition. Yeah. So international tuition. Uh, you're all in college. You're all excited about graduating. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your expectations for your future in the U.S. with this debate still going on? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's a tough subject yeah. to look that far out and even think about, you know, not being able to use all this hard work that you've put into these past years. Right. I feel like... But if they take DACA away, then we can't get a job. So then why do we have a degree then if we can't do anything with it? Is it hard to concentrate on, like, what you're trying to learn? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, is it hard to—or mm-hmm. is that an outlet for you to, to concentrate on your schoolwork? I, I just wonder, like, what, what are you thinking about in class? Like, you're in college now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, what, like, what's it like to, like, have to go home and do homework or, or have to come to class um, facing um, this really kind of big, looming question mark? I know personally, like, my sister, she's a DACA student, um, and she was just like, you know what? I don't know why I'm wasting my time in, in school, and she would get really unmotivated, I think, to just even get home and study. It was like, well, I don't even know, like, if I'm going to be able to go to college next semester, you know, so wh- why am I wasting my time on something that I can't I can't see the future of? So I think— um, I think just sometimes getting unmotivated of your education. Um, yeah. I agree. I think that sometimes when you're in class, you just get really unmotivated just because uh, you can't see the future, like Cynthia said. But for me, I like to, when I'm in class, I love I love being in college. I love um, being having the opportunity to study because I know a lot of people don't have the opportunity. But... It's at times when, like, the news stations um, and the radio stations or whenever I see another comment from Trump or another comment from some uh, another type of government or anything, that's when I'm just like, wow, so what am I doing with my life then? So, like, it'll kind of just hit you yeah, whenever, so, like, randomly. Right, sometimes. so I try, like, I try not to think about it. Like, when I'm in school, I'm just like, well, I love being here. I like what I like to do what I do. I love that I'm getting an education. I know my parents want this for me, and I'm uh, setting an example for my younger for my younger brothers. But then, yeah, it just hits me out of nowhere when I hear, like, you know, oh, you know, breaking news or, like, uh, another comment for DACA or, you know, another setback or something like that. I'm like, well, what what's going on then, you know? Um, you're in college now. Put yourselves back in the position of a high schooler. Uh, what would you want teachers, what would you want them to know about students in their classrooms who might be dealing with these pressures and anxieties? Um, what What do you think teachers should know? I remember when I was in high school, I sat in Mr. Carney's room, and I remember I just looked at him and I said, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm just going to work. And that's it. And then he said, no, 
you know, that's not going to that's not going to happen. You you got the potential to do that. And I remember that same around the same time we um, we drove up to to UCM. Um, that's the first college that I attended. Um, and we visited with the financial advisor and she gave us um, how much she told us how much I would have to pay out of pocket to go to UCM. And I remember leaving there and me and Mr. Carney just sat in a table and um, I cried. I said, no. Because this was, you're being charged international tuition, yes. like you said earlier. Yeah. Yes. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this. It's it's going to be impossible for me to do this. And um, he, we worked out, a, um, he was really helpful. He, he, we sat with my parents and we um, we worked out sort of like a financial plan of how monthly, what would I would need um, to, you know, to go to to UCM and um, I attended their first semester um, and then I sprayed my dad's job and you know he was about to get deported um, but he didn't so I decided to come back home finish my associate's degree um, but it was throughout that whole time it was it was really emotional and I can just think of students now that are in high school and that are DACA students how emotional they are because I know when I was in high school we didn't have to think in the back of our heads um, what's going to happen with DACA. And I feel like now as a high school, if I were to be a high school student, that would be my main issue, even going to high school. Like, why am why am I here? Why am I going to get my high school diploma if I don't know if I'm going to be able to even be here, you know, in a couple of months? So I feel like as a teacher, just um, be understandable. Keep your eyes open. So, yeah, I think just being really understandable. I know sometimes it can be really emotional, so. Well, Eduardo Vasquez, uh, Cynthia Yepes, and Diana, um, you are three impressive young students in college. Um, I will say good luck on your future endeavors. And Thank I you. Hope, Thank you. I hope you. you find what you guys are looking for. I really do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. to our final segment before kids these days. Teachers in West Virginia scored a big victory recently, a coordinated, well-organized statewide teacher strike that lasted nine school days, ultimately forced West Virginia's Republican-dominated legislature to pass and the Republican governor to sign a bill that gives a 5% raise to all public sector employees in the state. It was widely noted before and during the strike, West Virginia's teachers are some of the lowest paid in the nation. And they had been dissatisfied with a previous measure that had recently been signed into law, giving public employees staggered 1% and 2% raises. They were also upset at recent rules changes that were going to hike health insurance premiums dramatically for many teachers. Last episode, we talked with Kim Bonnet, the National Education Association director for West Virginia. We spoke with her, in fact, two days before the strike ultimately ended. And she was in the process of packing an overnight bag at her home in Gilmer County to drive to Charleston, the state capital, the next day. This is what she says was in part motivating what was one of the few statewide teacher strikes of the past four decades. Our school systems have gotten so poor, literally poor, <laughs> with money and with uh, we're we're lacking over 700 classrooms don't have qualified teachers in them. So you know it is it's harming our ability to recruit teachers. It's harming our ability to retain teachers. And then, you know, with the pay and with the, the lack of uh, benefits. Yeah, so uh, we're just uh, trying to do, be, do good PR for ourselves. Well, uh, mission accomplished, I'd say, on the good PR front. If you 
haven't, I encourage you to go back and listen to last episode and our interview with Kim Bonnet, a West Virginia teacher. But a week later, I wanted to revisit this topic, but now from the perspective of outsiders, our educators watching this from afar, now maybe with the advantage of hindsight too. We should note as we take this, there are reports that teachers in Arizona, Kentucky, and Oklahoma are all mobilizing for potential labor actions, those organizing efforts not totally inspired by, but given new urgency by what happened in West Virginia. So for uh, Bakari, Kirsten, and Maddie here today, do you find the West Virginia teachers' strike instructive, dare I say inspiring, in any way? I mean, I'm definitely inspired by the notion that um, they had solidarity across the ranks. Uh, The fact that even the superintendents would be willing to call off school so that they are not violating their contracts. I do think that even this notion of like I was concerned about the students, I think that's important. I think it's it's value added. But I think it's also like sometimes misses the point that if we were really that concerned about our students then we would value those who we put in front of our students more. I think we often put the burden on teachers to prioritize um, students, even meaning sometimes sacrificing themselves. And I feel like that's what this conversation sometimes goes to when we talk about, well, the teacher shouldn't have stri- t- shouldn't have did a strike because the students were out of school and then students don't have access to this, don't have access to that. And it's like, well, actually, some of those same students in school don't have access to those things because you have underfunded education uh, significantly. So I think that if we're really that concerned about our, our, our youth, then we would prioritize education nationwide and that we would see... Um, significant more funding of those who are educators and those who are, we are putting in front of our students to be their caretakers. Uh, does this indicate to you at all just um, how – can we infer from what happened in West Virginia anything about the current mindset of teachers? Just um, are they more politically motivated? Are they angrier than they've been in the past? Are they f- more fed up than they've been in the past? Or is that just reading too much into one particular state's situation? I think I think we could read into teachers getting more informed on political processes, processes on how they can advocate for themselves. There's often a tension that, I mean, we've addressed a lot on this podcast that uh, oftentimes teachers feel uncomfortable being, quote unquote, political um, or kind of putting them, you know, especially in the classroom, but even like um, in their lives, right? Just being political or, or engaging in political issues. Do you feel that changing? I would say to some extent, yes. I think that um, teachers are are at this point. I feel like society has moved us at a point where we cannot afford to not be anymore. And so it's like, whereas before we we were so bogged down with just the day-to-day of the work that we do as educators, now we're realizing that how important it is in an effort to... um, adjust the work that we're doing as educators and to lighten that load that we have to also be politically savvy and politically engaged in ways that we never had to be before because we're realizing those who are our representatives and those who are are supposed to be speaking for us are not actually informed enough to speak on our behalf anymore. So I think that we're at this point where we're saying that if we don't speak up, then we won't be heard. Yeah. Yeah, I also think that, you know, around the nation, there are so many examples of people rising up and um, taking a stand for what they believe Beyond in. Beyond just really, teachers, yeah. Yeah, not just teachers, and gaining a lot of momentum that's really pushing um, change forward. I think of Black Lives Matter, the women's marches, um, Me Too, the Me Too movement. There's so many examples of this, and I think that traction is gaining, and people are realizing they do have agency if they come together and are really strategic in how they approach and- it. Mm-hmm. And, and but you and Bakari, you're kind of in the managerial class. Mm-hmm. We want to. I mean, you are the. <laughs> uh, so if you are, 
how do you how do you get your teachers to or how do you as a manager want to see your teachers engaged with their political voice? So I think like within the context of the classroom, we're really intentional of making sure that our students are exposed to these different issues and these different movements. And they're learning about movements of today and movements of the past and saying, okay, these are how people use their voice and gain the traction they needed to create change. What are something you're passionate about? How can you use these strategies to um, really fight for what you believe in? And so they're political and empowering the the youth to um, take on these issues that matter to them so that they can continue to create the change we wish to see. Uh, perfectly timed here. Stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. And what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe, leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days. Maddie, what are your kids into? Oh, um... Why you always pick me first? Do you want to go last? Yes. Okay. Kirsten. <laughs> Today, sorry. <laughs> what are your kids into? Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I had a great conversation with a, another teacher of a teacher um, within the city, and apparently Fortnite is a huge thing that oh, kids yeah. are really oh, into. That's a good mm-hmm. one. Yeah. So that's popping up everywhere, and um, it's a battle game, and the tagline is "Last One Standing Wins," and they basically kill everyone off and the last one you know kills everyone off as a winner yes Fortnite has been around yep Fortnite that's getting plugged in but Kari what are your kids into well in the spirit of this conversation on advocacy um, I had a conversation with our student council president this week and they're lobbying and advocating for us to allow them to participate in the March 14th walkout Mm. Um, and so for this uh, this march for our lives right yeah Um, and so we're having conversations with our student council right now around what that would look like if that is executed so they're they're really tuned in to this national conversation around uh, school safety and just gun control yeah Maddie, I'm ready what, now. What are your kids into? Mine's a little derpy, but it's it's what we're into right now. We're into unicorns. All of my word problems are about unicorns, and people are calling each other unicorns. And <laughs> I was like, is that like a a thing? Like, am I missing a online movement? And they're like, no, we just love unicorns. I have three girls who came in with unicorn water bottles and it's in all of their writing projects that they want to go to Unicorn Island and that's what we've been talking about this is just kind of arbitrary no no, it's literally just like they really love unicorns so that's what they're so then that's prompted you to 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 create word problems and integrate it into your class yeah that I was going to say that all of them are really into Black Panther, but if I had to put money on it, someone's already said that for the podcast, right? Yeah, last week. Several, like yeah. Three. Several. Several weeks in a row. So, I mean, I felt like that just is an unsaid. Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Maddie Burkemper, Kirsten Brown, Bakari Ukuu. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Again, a reminder, if you live in the Kansas City metro, you're going to want to come to our live event Thursday, March 22nd, Keeping Our Schools Safe. Check our Facebook page for more details. Remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Mm-hmm.